The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Hello and welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Terry Loretto Valentic. Terry comes from a long line of aviation folks. Without exception, her entire immediate family were, or still are, involved in the industry. It seemed natural then that she worked her way through her degrees in the arts by working as a dispatcher, safety officer, and manager of a flight training unit. Strangely, her two worlds collide often. Her aviation weather training, combined with her film and TV work, landed her the job as a backup weather person for the local CBC news station. Some of her favorite theater experiences were working on shows like Billy Bishop Goes to War and Voices from the Front. Now the coordinator of the script writing program at Algonquin College, she still uses her aviation background when working on scripts involving planes and aviation. The skills she learned while working in aviation have served well in her transition to normal jobs. Amazing how easy it can be when no one is going to crash if you make a mistake. Sometimes while sitting at her desk, she gazes longingly at the big blue sky outside her window. I am so incredibly excited to have her joining me today. Welcome, Terry. Hello. Hello from across the years. It's nice to see you again or hear you again. It's nice to see and hear you again. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? Oh, my Lord. Um... Uh, well, I'll start, I'll start at the very beginning. My father was an RCAF pilot uh, uh, by way of England. I guess maybe they didn't want him there, but he worked his way across to Canada on a boat and walked right up to the RCAF station and said, I need a job. And uh, that's how he started. And he likes to, he, sorry, my father passed away uh, in 2019, but he used to joke that his squadron, um, Commander hated him so much, he wanted to get him far away, so they seconded him to the Australian Air Force, where he heard a beautiful, sonorous tones of a lovely woman's voice on the air traffic control tower in New Zealand, and that was my mom. And he asked her out on dates, and many, many years later, they crossed the ocean again to work for TransCanada Airlines, which became Air Canada. As the first civilian airline to give my dad a job out of the Air Force. And my sister and myself came along not long after. Um, and uh, yeah, it kind of started from there. I remember as a very young kid, you know, taking full advantage of all my father's passes with Air Canada and my mother's at the time as well. Then we moved to a farm in Daniel, sort of about halfway between Montreal and Ottawa. And my parents each bought a matching set of his and hers chants. And I must have been, oh my goodness, seven or eight when my dad decided to take me up on a flight, show me what it's like to stall in a 1942 <laughs> champ you you have control and I was like don't do this to me dad <laughs> but that was kind of how we spent our weekends was going around to fly-ins and you know uh pushing my dad out you know onto the ice on the on the um on the skis if it was winter time and my mother had her own little champ I liked flying with her better because she just liked to point the nose and 
in the direction she wanted to go and have a nice little tootle around and come back to the airport. My dad was much more ambitious in his flying, of course. In fact, the champ he picked up uh, in BC and flew it across the Rockies to get it back to Ontario. So um, interesting, interesting times as a child. You know, what's funny about that, though, is I never wanted to be a pilot. I love the flying, the freedom, all of that, but I think I'm too much of a magpie, you know, shiny things person that you don't want to trust me behind a yoke or a stick. Um, But I loved, I don't know what it is. I think it's the romance, the history, the stories my dad would tell about his older siblings who were fighter pilots in the Second World War and my grandfather who was RAF in the First World War, um, Hadley Night Bomber, Navigator, that kind of stuff. And I, I guess I just grew up with it. My mom's dad, my granddad was an aviation mechanic on weekends. You know, and it was just kind of a thing. It was always in the air. It was always the conversation around the table. I think it's the only thing my father ever did. Ever did, and it's one thing my mom really wanted to do, but it was tough for a woman in the fifties and sixties, you know, to be a pilot. So she she did it recreationally, and then my adopted brother from Newfoundland ended up joining the military, and I think so maybe to get back at my dad became a heavy artillery anti aircraft uh, bomber. <laughs> And and then he ended up working for Bombardier and my older sister was a flight attendant who ended up becoming a base manager. She married an aviation mechanic. My best friend, my son's godmother is an air traffic controller, now drone expert for for Nav Canada. My younger sister started as a flight attendant, then became a flight instructor, quitting very quickly after her first student saying, that man tried to kill me. I don't want to do this anymore. So she became a pilot, a float pilot you know, bird dog, and then she WestJet pilot. So my whole family, my whole world has always centered around aviation. So when I wanted to go and finish my theater degree, I needed a job. So I became safety officer, dispatcher, weather, everything that I could do to help out with the business because I just loved being around it. And that's kind of how I got my feet wet. Now, I did not come from an aviation family at all. And I wouldn't change my upbringing at all, but it does sound incredible to have an entire family and ecosystem to grow up in that is all aviation all the time. And the idea of having a his and hers matching champs, that's just, (laughs) that's, that's all you could ever really want. Well, speak for yourself. (laughs) I just, I wanted to be in film and television and theater and a journalist and all of these things. So I really was the black sheep of the family. And I'm not sure if it's an urban legend or or whether my dad was telling the truth or not. But when I went to uh, start my undergrad at University of Ottawa, before I went to grad school, you know, I, I sort of went hat in hand and said, I need some money. Like, you know, university is really expensive and it's a four year program, yada, yada. And I said, can I have access to my university money? Because, you know, the RESPs that all parents invest in in Canada, because that's what we do. And they sort of looked a little bit uncomfortable and shuffled their feet. And my dad said, well... It's on the ramp. I said, what do you mean it's on the ramp? And he said, it's a Beach 19 sport. (laughs) I said, what? Are you crazy? He said, yeah, we we didn't think you'd go to university because your brothers and sisters didn't. They all became pilots. So we spent it. We bought a plane. (laughs) So that was kind of where I, you know, standing there thinking, okay, so what do I do now? And they said, well, we we need somebody who knows business. And and I had just finished um, helping Barrymore's open their downstairs bar at the time. And I'd been working in retail and, you know, and was much more of an academic and really wanted to go to grad school and stuff like that. So 
I took over the business side, the office management, and worked side by side, elbow to elbow with my mom. And at the time, uh, they had just opened the London Flight Center with Diamond Aircraft. So my dad was down there most of the time, and we would fly back and forth in the Grove or the beach with some student who needed cross-country time. And we ran those two businesses. We had another school in Wingham. We ended up selling to the instructor there. And I realized really quickly that although I'm not a flyer, fly girl, like my sisters were, I loved being around, I guess, because it's something I'd known my whole life. And I lived, ate, breathed aviation for so long. And and you probably know this because you're so passionate about flying, but, and, and you know, some of our mutual friends, Kate Spear and those folks, you know, there are some amazing people in aviation. Running a flying school was so different from anything I'd done before because people came in there every day because they wanted to be there. They were full of joy. Like, oh, I got an extra hour at lunch. I'm coming in to do my touch and goes or I'm working on my night rating. Can you stay up till 11 o'clock? I'll call you when I'm down, you know? And so everybody wanted to be there with very few exceptions, you know? And from kids who had big eyes on planes to, gosh, I remember this gentleman coming in the door with his dog-eared logbook And he hadn't flown since 1944. And his last flight was flying across the Atlantic. Um, He used to accompany bombers. Uh, That's what he did. And his logbook was crazy. You would have loved it. Like, it actually had dogfighting. It was one of the exercises, you know. And all of us just, what? And he was in his late 80s and his wife had finally agreed to let him fly again. She figured that he was close enough to the grave that it was safe now. And he hadn't flown since the war and he got behind the the stick in the katana and he was just, you know, I, I regret not inviting him back because somebody had bought him this fam flight, kind of familiarization flight. And, and I just thought, oh my gosh, we should just let that guy just come and sit here and talk to us and give him free flights all day. Because <laughs> it was incredible. You know, the breadth of people that came into that school just filled me with so much pride and joy every day that it it became I still look up, even though I haven't worked in aviation for almost a decade. Every time I hear a plane, I still look up. (laughs) Now, what is climatology? Aha. So now you know where we're going. So I had this background in theater and performance. I had an undergrad in theater and a master's degree in theory of performance. I've been working in film, television, producing, that sort of thing. But... All of that was paid for by me working as a safety officer, dispatcher, weather person, uh, did my um, meteorology training with Transport Canada, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And my safety officer training. And I did a fundraiser for um, the Via Marconi, which is an old folks residence here in, in Ottawa. And I met Rita Chelly, who works for CBC Ontario Today. At the time, she was with the morning show on CBC Ottawa. And she said, hey, you know, we're looking for a backup weather person, you know, for TV. And you're pretty good at that stuff. And I said, well, I sort of have to be because literally people's lives are on the line. If I'm sending a student pilot up on a cross country and they're flying into a storm, you know, that's my I, I got to stop them from doing that. And she said, oh, okay, well, why don't you come in and do a, do a screen test? So I did screen test, did an interview with Ian Black, who's our local um, meteorologist, CMOS endorsed. 
at CBC News. And he, you know, he was quite funny. He ran me through the the the, the gauntlet, as it were. What are those? I'm like, well, they're isobars. You know, what do they mean? I'm like, well, uh, areas of high and low pressure, you know. <laughs> and he said, oh, you do know what you're talking about. And I said, well, it's 12 years dispatching pilots, life or death. You kind of have to know how to read weather maps. And so this weird thing happened where all of this flaky, artsy background, you know, drama school (laughs) and film collided with my aviation world knowledge of climate and weather. And I got offered the job. So I was the weekend weather person for CBC News Ottawa for three years permanent and then that show unfortunately got cancelled but I had been backfill for Ian for about seven years before that and I'm still backfill for Ian I'll be in there in a couple weeks and it's been great it's really brought my love of all things weather and aviation together with my performance background and it's the weirdest thing because not many people have those two things but I have to say when I deliver the weather I'm always thinking from the perspective of a pilot and I have to catch myself in writing up Uh, my weather reports because I tend to use WX instead of actually spelling out weather and I'll say things it's like uh, you know it's I I use a lot of aviation terminology that the average person wouldn't use so I have to be careful with that Uh, because it's easier it's easier to use aviation it makes sense you know Uh, but I am the ability to go into a lot of aviation sites that some weather people aren't familiar with and looking at um you know, particular reports specific to airports, METARs, TAFs, all that kind of stuff that the average weather person wouldn't be looking at has been been pretty cool because I think that aviation treats weather with a heck of a lot of importance, whereas the average person is like, can I go to the beach? Do I need an umbrella? Whereas we're thinking in terms of, am I going to die today? Or am I going to take seven hours to fly my champ in that direction? You know, so it, it changes the way you look at weather, but it, but aviation really informs the way I, I, I do my job. I guess it wouldn't be a very common uh, combination of aviation, uh, meteorology, and also theater and film. Uh, but I mean, I've seen you on the news for years. And now I know that you're speaking to pilots when you're um, when you're preparing the news, I'll, I'll be listening that much more intently. I like to think that Harrison Ford and I could hit it off, you know, pilot, actor, weather person, film person. Why not? There's just so much overlap. It would only make sense. I know. Now, can you tell me a little bit more about your experiences as a climatologist? Well, um, it's it's hmm. I'm going to tell you all kinds of industry secrets. In order to be a television weather person, you don't actually have to be certified by CMOS as a climatologist or weather expert or meteorologist, whatever you want to call them. So I'm not. Oh my goodness, I am a CMOS member. If that helps, but they actually have courses that you go to. It's it's a university course. You can go for a year, two years, and they teach you how to be a broadcast weather person. And they only exist in the States. You can do some online. So when it came to my training, uh, I mean, I worked with Ian Black, who is a certified climatologist, but I worked the software that we use for our weather reports is through WSI, Weather Services International. Um, they're really highly used by aviation. In fact, a lot uses a lot of AccuWeather and all these companies use their stuff. And so you go on training courses with them on how to accurately interpret their radar, their satellite images, that type of stuff, and also how to use the basic software, punching in numbers, putting in graphics, that sort of thing. And then you spend the rest of your time um, 
pouring through Environment Canada, AccuWeather, Weather Network, any any resource that you can use to make sure that the, what you're looking at is correct. Um, NOAA, NORAD, any of those, anything you can get a hold of. If you want to be the person who is hired by Environment Canada or the Weather Network to be that chief of environmental, you know, documentation and you're the, the you know, somebody like uh, the head of Environment Canada's, you know, forecasters, then yeah, you better well, you should probably have a science degree, you should probably have a minimum of a few years experience in the field. But if you're going to do what I do, which is backfill for local television, what I did, you get away with it. My knowledge is strong. It's it's uh, based in in good training in aviation and Transport Canada, and it's backed up by um, a really good performance background. <laughs> uh, we joke about you know people always send me little cards. There's that dartboard in the corner, and it's got like snowy, windy, rainy, sunny, and you just throw a dart at it. That's not what I do. I actually do look at radar maps and satellite maps, but. Now, what are some of the challenges with developing weather forecasts? Well, it depends on where you live. Here in the Ottawa Valley, where I am, where you are, uh, the weather can change on a dime. That's sort of the joke. You don't like the, the weather in the Ottawa Valley. Wait 10 minutes. And it's partially because of our geographical location, as you probably know, as a pilot, you know, the, the carp escarpment, the Gatineau escarpment really reacts to weather systems moving across them. We've got the Rideau Lake system, the Great Lakes. Uh, we get a lot of weather pushing across from the states, of course, and then coming down from the north. So where we live, there's there's quite a cross section of little micro weather systems that can happen we get microbursts, we get um, snow squalls, we get all kinds of interesting weather here. When I was down in California visiting friends, I thought, oh my gosh, why do they even have weather people here in Los Angeles like every single day? Sunny, 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 slight chance of rain, maybe a forest fire. Everybody calm down. Um, but it's not like here. Move a little bit north in California, San Francisco and the Bay. Absolutely. There's interesting weather happening. But yeah, so Ottawa is fascinating because we do have such a diverse weather system here. So that can be problematic. We can be uh, severe, clear, you know, cavalcade over here at the Ottawa airport and Gatineau airport snowed in. It's that much of a microclimate where we are. So that is pretty cool. It's not anything like St. John's or Gander where you're dealing with IFR conditions you know, probably five out of six days a week. But we do have our share of difficult weather. And if a system pushes 50 kilometers to the north or 50 kilometers to the south, it completely changes your forecast. Now, aside from wanting to maybe use aviation terms when it comes to meteorology, what are some of the other influences uh, from aviation on your um, meteorology life? I, I, I don't know if this is true or maybe I'm delusional. Both are possible, <clears throat> but I tend, I focus a lot on wind in my forecasts, whereas I don't see a lot, unless it's going to be a severe wind event, as they call it. I don't see people focusing on that, but that's something I always bring into my forecast because it's so important. Um, and wind direction is another one. Um, so that's different. Uh, we, we do these weekly weather watcher photos and I tend to have a lot that focus on airplanes and flying. I tend to, uh, every weather person is different, but you know, you try to, we're, we're what you call the accordion of the newscast because we're going live. We don't have a teleprompter like reporters do. And we've been making our graphics and, and setting up all of our graphics all day. So we know exactly what's coming up. Unlike news that's breaking news, they may not know what's going to hit them next. So if the newscast is what we call heavy or going long, they'll say, hey, can you cut it? 
So while instead of three minutes, I might have a minute and a half. So you have to be ready to move on the fly, that kind of thing. And that's something we have to do in aviation. So I've been really good at it. And there's a little voice in your head, just like air traffic control when you're on TV, a little earpiece in and, and somebody's up in, in the control room saying, okay, uh, we just had to float an item, meaning we had to drop an item. Can you fill another 45 seconds? So we're tap dancing. We're like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And of course, you can't answer. You just sort of nod and, you know, let's just go back to the radar and take another look at that. <laughs> so being able to improvise and listen to the voices in your head was really important uh, as for, for a job as a TV uh, climatologist, weather person. And when I go in, because I, you know, I'm catching up, I have, sometimes I'm there six weeks in a row, sometimes I'm only there once every four months. And it's technology, you have to relearn. And the voices in my head, as you know, as a pilot, if they say turn now, you turn now. If you got to get out, like downwind now, you do it now. So a voice in my head will say five seconds. And in five seconds, I'm like, and oh, that's your weather. Done. And then the voice will come back in my head, my buddy Pat, and he'll say, you know, when I give other people five seconds, they sort of ramble on for 30. So, you know, you don't have to be that tight on the five seconds. And I'm like, dude, years of training. You say five seconds, I'm out of here in five seconds. <laughs> so, so those are things I learned in aviation. And, and you, you don't unlearn those. That's years of muscle memory. <laughs> You know, if you're being given a direction, you, you do it now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I worked on a tall ship for a year uh, with an environmental theater company. A friend of mine came in and filled in for me for actually it was about 10 months. And uh, I was back and forth. But and on this tall ship, the captain told me once to open up the bilges. And that's where we stored stuff. He also had to suck water out of there, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I want you to do an inventory of what's in the bilge. I said, okay. And about an hour later, I had this hand-drawn map where everything was listed, itemized, correctly spelled, typed up and handed to him. And he said, I was just kind of looking for a vague, you know, there's some stuff in there. <laughs> and he came to visit me at the airport months later. And he said, oh my goodness, I totally understand now why you had an exact map of where everything was in the bilge. I said, well, you did ask. You got to know where things are in aviation. Otherwise you hit them. And that's not a good thing. So it definitely has bled into all kinds of aspects of my life. Now, what is the most rewarding part of working in meteorology? There's something, oh gosh, this sounds really silly, really flaky, but there's something that really connects you with your environment when you spend eight hours a day watching blobs on the radar. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, oh wait a minute. That storm's taking us two degrees to the north. We could get some snow tonight. Uh, and you get, it's, everything slows down. Everything slows down because you're watching things in real time. And, and you have no control over it. None. You know, I don't make the weather. I just report it, of course. Although I still get people calling me at work saying, I'm going golfing tomorrow. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> it's like, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not at work. I don't have a radar and satellite right now. You know? Sorry, could you, could you call somebody? <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, I think it's because time slows down. You're watching things in real time. You see patterns. You see patterns. That is so cool that you don't see in everyday life. You're walking down the street. That doesn't happen. But when you're watching radar satellite images and you're watching that rotation on a system and you're seeing it affect Winnipeg, let's say, and then three days later, it's at you and you're like, oh, ooh, East Coast is going to get socked. Or you see a system pulling up from a, 
um, a tropical storm or a cyclone or something, you see how it's going to affect you. And, you know, you want to just yell, batten down the hatches, it's coming up the East Coast. So you can really see where I, where I am as North America, obviously, but you can see the world, how weather systems move around our planet. And that is pretty cool. You know, you could see a system that starts in the South Pacific and just moves around the planet. I also feel, I don't know how you feel, but I feel this real connection, maybe because I worked on a tall ship, to the pilots of the original pilots on tall ships, you know, back in the older, older, older days. We're talking back to, you know, 15, 1600s. Imagine crossing the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean in a tall ship and having to read the weather like that with the materials and the instruments that they had, you know, they didn't have the benefit of GPS and satellite technology. So I just, I have such incredible awe for, and way back to the beginnings of, of what we know as human civilization, those people who could read the clouds and, and the sound of the birds and the bugs and what that meant and, and relate that to weather and, and their universe and their world. And it's, it's kind of cool. Meteorology has always been my favorite part of aviation to study. I think it's because we all had to figure it out. There wasn't someone that always just knew weather. It was something everyone needed to to learn and has been honed over the years. And I, I love having moments where I get to predict something or say, oh, I think it's going to go this way because I know this one fact. I, I love that about meteorology. I've also totally, I mean, I don't know if you've done this to your friends, but I've made all of them install the Franktown Raider on their phones. <laughs> Like, just check it, just pull up the radar. You'll see where it's going. <laughs> and my husband still, how come your radar is better than my radar? It's a different phone. <laughs> yeah, most of my friends now, non-aviation related friends, all know how to read the radar now. And they check the Franktown radar if they're going somewhere. Now, you have had an incredibly diverse career. Would you be able to explain a little bit more about the role you currently hold? Sure. Uh, as I said, um, aviation basically subsidized my dreams to be an artist in theater and film and journalism, radio, all those things, music. And um, two years ago, is that correct? Yes, August 2019, I interviewed for and got offered a job in full-time faculty member at Algonquin College, where I had been part-time teaching in theater arts, performing arts, journalism, TV broadcasting, professional writing, script writing, anything I could get my hands on. You know, artists need to pay the bills too. So you do a lot of job to job. And I've been part-time there for about 12 to 15 years. And, you know, having children and getting older, my goodness. And I was so, so blessed and privileged to get hired. Um, It's been the best job I've ever had. My boss is amazing. Amazing. And um, when COVID hit, boy, what a difference to have a paycheck coming in instead of being a full-time artist or even in flight training, you know, so, so much of that business has fallen to the wayside. My entire family, you know, my sister is frontline uh, at First Air Montreal, base manager, and it's scary. You know, she's surrounded by COVID. My younger sister, pilot for WestJet, has been laid off for 11 months, you know, so I'm really privileged to have the job I do. I coordinate two programs. This is another thing. You're not supposed to coordinate a program in your first year of hire. I got two. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) I think it's the high stress of aviation. When you have a job where nobody's going to die if you're late or something messes up, you know, you do it pretty well. So I coordinate script writing, which is a grad certificate, and performing arts, which is an introductory pathway certificate. 
And I also teach in TV broadcasting, sometimes in journalism and professional writing as well. And it's fantastic. And one of my favorite scripts last year from one of my students was a biopic based on the life of Roald Dahl, Dahl, rather the children's author, and his time as a Second World War fighter pilot. (laughs) And she did amazing research, amazing research. And I'm working on a script right now with uh, Greg Reynolds over at the Aviation Museum. Uh, We're going to try and put together a good script for his air show when that's all up and running again. And I have to say, when I'm in a class with my performing arts students, I, I ask them this, I'm like, okay, you people, you need to memorize your lines. You need to memorize your lines so well that, you know, a truck could drive through this room and you'd still know where you were going. It's called muscle memory. Does anybody know about muscle memory? <laughs> and what do I do? I launch into how to do a spin. <laughs> I go to spin training. Okay, so imagine you're in a plane and the nose is pointing to the ground and you're spinning around and around to the right. What do you do? What do you do? Your hands on the stick. What do you do? And inevitably, every single time, it's never gone wrong. You pull up. You got to pull up on the stick. And I was like, and you're dead because you know what you need to do. (laughs) Full opposite rudder, stick to the floor. (laughs) I still use that. And they go, really? And I'm like, yeah, and it'll snap your plane out of it. Unless you're flying an air coupe, which won't do that in the first place. But now you're flying straight and left. You know, and I go through the whole spin training exercise And then I liken it to live performance because the muscle memory you learn in spin training, as you know, and I've talked to pilots who've gotten into accelerated spins or been in potential crash situations who say, yes, it kicks in. Your brain is screaming, pull up, pull up, pull up. And your body goes full opposite rudder, stick to the floor. And I try and get my actress to do that. Because you know your lines so well. You know your character's objectives and intentions so well. You know your choreography and your blocking so well. And it doesn't matter that the flower pot fell down or the wall collapsed. You're going. You're going to go. Your brain's going, oh my goodness, what was that? But your body's going, da 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 And they get it. They understand when you put it in terms of life and death. <laughs> they understand the whole idea of muscle memory. <clears throat> so I brought a lot of my life experience to my job. But I'm a full-time faculty, college professor loving it. I still do backfill for weather at CBC radio and television. I also host in town and out uh, on occasion when Giacomo Panico is away, which is a local arts, culture, events, sports show. It's three hours starting at 6 a.m. on Saturdays. I also got used to early hours in aviation, so that doesn't phase me. And I have a theater production company. We do mostly radio plays and a lot of them have been based on aviation as well. And I direct as a theater director and a writer and my favorite show I've ever directed. Guess what? Billy Bishop goes to war <laughs> as an aviation piece. And uh, I was so privileged to have Bob Fassold before he passed on, come to that show. And all my buddies who fly their radio controlled aircraft, we had them all over the theater hanging from the ceiling and it just looked beautiful. So there's, there's still that love in me for the romance of aviation for what aviation teaches you as a human being. And that's focus, passion, um, intelligence, problem solving, joy, camaraderie, all of those things that aviation gives you, I've carried with me, even though I haven't personally been in the business for, gosh, almost a decade. Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? Oh my goodness. So many people, so many people and not always, you know, people with accolades and stories to follow them like that. 
Um, I always admired my mom. She just loved flying. You just get in a little champ and you go somewhere and you have a picnic and you come back. I just thought this is the best. This is what you got to do. It's like that 1960s sort of ads and magazines, you know, the, the commuter plane brings your family somewhere. I think we sort of live that. Um, gosh, I do admire um, both of my sisters too, because the tenacity that they've had to demonstrate to stay, as you know, it's a male dominated business. Um, it's not always the kindest of hours. It's not always receptive to women who want families or, um, you know, you really have to have strength of personality and strength of commitment to what you're doing. And both of them have done that. So I really admire that. And people like Kathy Fox, you know, she's just, she's just great. You know, she's tough and she's great and funny and all that at the same time. Um, and the pioneers, the, I know I'm harping on women in aviation because I'm a woman, perhaps you couldn't tell yet. <clears throat> it is radio. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you read, my gosh, like one of my favorite novels in the last um, year was um, um, The Huntress. I don't know if anybody's out there read it yet, but it's called The Huntress. And it's loosely based around the true story of, of the um, the Nochstraga, the, the night witches who flew for the Russian Air Force in the Second World War. And it's an awesome book. It's got to be a movie. Speaking of script writing, it has to be a movie. Um, so the women that did stuff like that, who were largely unheard of until recently who had no, they didn't do it because they were trying to prove anything to anybody. Although maybe some of them did, but they were doing a job and they never really got any thanks or accolades for it, but they were tough as nails. And those are the kind of people I admire. Now, would you please share with me a favorite highlight or memory from any point in your career? The journey has been pretty weird. <laughs> it's been pretty diverse let's say, between tall ships, airplanes, theater stages, music, academics, being a professor, it's all, I guess, you know what, I do have to say that for me, I get really excited when my students succeed. I have some students just yesterday, I found out two of them won a writing competition, not a big one, but it was so cool. I have two students who are actually uh, have agents now and they're getting pitching their TV series like to major corporations. Uh, I have another one that won an Emmy award. Like that's cool. And as a teacher, there's nothing better than, than seeing your students succeed because it's like, I don't know, it's a litmus test, I guess, of being a good teacher, but it's also you feel a bit relieved, like, whew, I'm doing all right, doing something right. <laughs> I guess it's like getting down from your first solo, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm still alive, I'm still alive, and the aircraft is in one piece. It's good. Now, having had so many varied experiences, what is left on your bucket list? Uh, you know, this is really weird because it's absolutely aviation related. I always wanted to write a television series or a streaming series uh, because it's one thing I haven't done. I've done radio shows, you know, live shows, theater shows, film. I've never done a television. I've never written a TV show. So I don't know if, you, you know, Netflix had their first open call this year. And I thought, what the heck? I didn't get it, by the way. So let's not get too excited. But I wrote the proposal for a series and wrote the first, the pilot episode of a series called The Cold War based on my dad's time in a, as a Cold War fighter pilot in a squadron based in Quebec. 
and um, it follows the lives of five young pilots, five young men. They were all men at the time, uh, one of whom is a black flight surgeon based on a black flight surgeon I actually know uh, who did serve in the Cold War, who actually had his wings, which was pretty rare at the time as well. And then these four young men from across Canada, Prairies, Newfoundland, French Canadian, and my dad, who is a British uh, expat. You know, and their shenanigans, but it's also the Cold War because it's based against the backdrop of the language war in Quebec that happened at the same time. The FLQ crisis um, was right around the corner. And, uh, you know, the world was in a pretty precarious position during the Cold War. People, you know, stopped you know, get under your desks, the whole, this thing. So I thought it would lead to a a pretty exciting concept for a television series. And then of course, being the early to mid to late sixties is where the course of this show hopefully will follow Uh, the women's rights and uh, the original black rights movements were happening at the same time, Vietnam. So there was, there was all kinds of drama that could happen within this TV series. This is why I think it's awesome. (laughs) somebody needs to buy it. If not Netflix, then I'm willing prime. If you're listening, I'm up for it. Um, But yeah, it was loosely based around some of the stories my dad had told me about that. So calling it the cold war, meaning cold war uh, figuratively and literally. And um, what inspired a lot of that was um, at my dad's celebration of life when he passed on, you kind of know me. I like people. And it, it was a tough day. He didn't want a funeral. And I was so lucky that one of the reporters at CBC, Omar Debagi Pacheco, had gone up in my dad's plane. It was an, it's a 1936 Hornet Moth biplane. And my dad liked to joke that the combined age of pilot and plane was over 100 years. Not that that made me feel safe about <laughs> flying in it. So Omar had gone up with my dad uh, the summer before he passed away with his GoPro. And they've done a bunch of approaches and flying and all that. So I had this great video playing that Omar had made for me. It was about a, about a 30 minute loop of the Hornet Moth and my dad flying the Hornet Moth um, had, has quite a history of its own. It was really a George Neal owned it before my dad, who was um, just a legend in Canadian aviation. And it's since been sold to um, a pilot as well, a friend of ours, um, works out of Smith Falls Airport or flies out of Smith Falls Airport. Anyway, he's also a commercial pilot airline. So it was a super cool plane. So we had that looping up there on the video. We had all my dad's wings and Air Force stuff and his Air Canada stuff and pictures. And, you know, people were just hanging out. And it was alternately sad and yet joyful and sharing memories as celebrations of life and funerals usually are. So this couple of, of gentlemen came into the room and one uh, I hope this is kind. They both looked kind of like Santa Claus, like an old Santa and a young Santa, but thin. <laughs> and young Santa, my mother said, well, I'm not sure, just, you know, blah, blah, who that is. And the older Santa went and sat in the corner and he was quite walking with a cane. And, you know, you could tell he was he was moving a bit slower, uh, older gentlemen, uh, just nice big smiles and lovely men. And um, <clears throat> uh, so I, my mother said, oh, gosh, you know, I, I think that might be our landscaper or whoever that was. And so she went to talk to him and this older gentleman was alone over in the corner. And so I thought, oh, I'm just going to go sit beside him, ask him how he's doing and make him welcome, see if he wants a tea or coffee or something like that. So I sat down beside him and very gentle, soft-spoken man, quite lovely. And he, he said, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. And I said, oh, thank you. And I said, well, how did, how did you know my dad? And he said, well, my son worked with your dad at Air Canada. In fact, your dad took him under his wing when he started. And I said, that doesn't sound like my dad, who was an old grump. <laughs> 
quite an outspoken, loud and obnoxious human of many times. And he said, no, no. He said he really looked after my son when he got there. So I, I want, I'm very grateful. And I wanted to come and say goodbye to your father. And I knew him up north. I knew your father up north. Not well, but I knew him enough up north. And I said, oh, my gosh, well, my dad was based at Bagotville or one of the northern squadrons. And he said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I said, well, you'll never guess what my sister and I found. I said, we're cleaning out all of dad's stuff. And my sister Nina came across a series of papers, standard papers, eight by 11, sort of a little bit waxy uh, and a telegram. And I guess there were about six or eight pieces of paper in that stack. And the first one, and it was written in this bright orange China marker, and there was a line down the middle. And on one side was in English, and one side was French. And the English side said something like, um, are, you, are you the pilot with, with uh, whatever the call sign was? And in French, the next one was, uh, it, it was uh, make a T with your arms or a Y for English, T for French something like that. And then the, they obviously figured out he was English because the next couple of signs were in English. It said, is, was there anybody else on board? Or I don't think they'd figured out he was English yet. Est-ce qu'il y a des autres personnes en bord? Uh, you know, wave a white shirt for yes, tea with your arms for no. And then this series of notes goes on until the final one was, are you okay? And then, you know, yes, okay. And then the last one said, great, sit tight, somebody's on their way to get you. And I was like, what the hell was that all about? And then I twigged. My dad had owned a lake, um, the Amphib aircraft, and he admitted he ditched it in a lake in Northern Ontario, it's, or Quebec at some point when he was in the Air Force. And the final thing in that stack of letters was a telegram, typical of my father, dear sirs, uh, so sorry for any inconvenience my ditching of my aircraft might have caused your pilots. Um, greatly appreciated that they came and fished me out of the bush. I'm not sure how much longer I could have made it there. Blah, blah, blah. Thank you very much. Sorry for the inconvenience. And I was like, oh, my gosh. These are the, the notes that he got on the ground from somebody up there when he crashed his plane. He ditched it in, the, in a lake and he managed to swim out to shore. He was alone on board. What he used to do is on weekends, he would fly American fisher people up to, you know, remote locations to go fishing to make some extra money. And I guess engine trouble, something happened and he went in, you know, he ditched it and uh, fortunately managed to get out, lost everything. Headphones, radio, they didn't have, you know, ELTs at the time, logbooks, everything gone. And I guess he'd been in the bush for a couple of days. And when they found him, he'd managed to light a fire and was sitting around, I guess, in the skivvies or something. And, and it was a twin otter, I guess, that found him. And they dumped somehow these notes down to him on the ground. And then they sent somebody in search and rescue to get him out. Anyway, so I tell this gentleman at my dad's celebration of life this story. And he starts to laugh. I said, why are you laughing? And he said, I was the pilot that flew that plane that found your dad. And I just got goosebumps. I said, what? He said, oh, yeah. And I said, okay, tell me, did you drop them down in a capsule or what happened? He said, no, no, no. He said, frankly, I wasn't actually writing the notes. It was my co-pilot, uh, Jean-Francois, Jean-Guy. He said, I would just do a low and over and tip that, that twin otter right over on its side. And he'd lean out the window and kind of throw it down to the surface of the lake. Your dad would swim out, get it, bring back to the shore and read it and throw his hands in the air or rave his shirt or whatever we asked him to do. And then when we figured out that he was okay, we, and we pinpointed where he was, we went back to base and sent somebody in to get him. 
So that is what inspired my bucket list to write the Cold War, because that would be this, the cliffhanger for season one. Will Larry get out of the bush? Larry's named Barry in this show. <laughs> or Harry. I haven't figured that out yet. Um, but yeah, so that that story, I just said, holy moly, like what are the odds? What are the odds of that man? And he said, I just wanted to say goodbye. I said, you saved his life. He said, maybe. I said, I wouldn't be here if you hadn't found him. He said, frankly, we were surprised that he was still alive because there were a lot of wildlife in the northern bush. Anyway, so that's my bucket list. I want that story to be told. I really hope that gets picked up um, because I'd definitely watch it. And if it doesn't, I just want to keep talking to you about all the different episodes you had planned. I'm going to keep keep writing. I'm going to keep writing. Now, where can our listeners find you on social media? I have an IMDb page that is Terry Loretto, L-O-R-E-T-T-O, Terry with one R. I, my Twitter is at Loretto's Weather, and uh, my theater company is Plosive Productions, although I have to say I'm a little bit busy now to be working there. Or you can find me on the Algonquin College website as the coordinator for script writing and performing arts. Ooh, or Instagram, I'm Terry underscore Rata. We will be sure to have all those links available for our listeners in the episode description. Terry Loretta Valentic, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really fun. And thank you. I feel like I forced you to sit beside me in the beach sport for my night cross country. It was long and boring, I'm sure. But thanks for coming along for the ride. Nice. Uh, night cross countries are never long and boring. And if these are the <laughs> stories that we get told, they get told, then you can come night flying with me anytime. I will. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.